Yeah, Dan and I had a funny conversation the other day, actually, about vices. And we were discussing what our vices were, what we considered each other's vices to be. And I'm interested to hear what you think yours would be. Mm. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm tempted to say uh, I'm quite suggestive to a lot of things. And it's probably the suggestibility that is it's my vice. <laughs> like, you're easily persuaded, is that what you're saying? I am, yes. Yeah. Mine is laziness. Mm, like, interesting. I, I, I love a good layabout on the couch just watching TV. Yeah. And, and then you couple it with like, like some ice cream. Oh, oh God. God, ice cream. Ice cream is definitely a vice. <laughs> yeah, all right. I think we're both settled on ice cream. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. See, I thought mine was laziness and that's what I said. And Dan was like, no, no, no. Yours is YouTube. And I was like, <gasps> right, okay. But I was like, I don't think I watch it that much. And then we went on the app and you can go through and see how much you've watched YouTube in a week. Oh, dear. <laughs> no, 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 no. Try and guess. Hang on. Uh, let's see. 20 hours. Oh, Anna, is it? It's under 100, right? In a week. 20 hours is a lot. It was 27 hours in the last week I've watched YouTube. <laughs> I thought 20 was a lot. Yeah, so over a day of my last week, I've spent watching YouTube. That's bad. That's so bad. That's quite a bit. I don't think uh, my ice cream habit is that bad. No. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Random Up Memorable, the podcast brought to you by 1Password. We're here to bring you lots of friendly security advice, a roundup of the latest security news, and some very special guests. And if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. But still, Anna, that's a lot. Like, that's, that's a lot. Yeah, I've got a real problem. Should get that checked out. Anna also sends the best YouTube videos to me, I think. Aww. The one that you sent recently where it's a Netflix bot that has been forced to watch and analyze every romantic comedy. <laughs> uh, we'll have to link to that in the show notes if, it, if it's work appropriate, because it just gets every trope of a romantic comedy just perfectly right. It does. But at the same time, it's nonsense. Yeah, I can't tell whether it's really clever or it's really stupid. It's a mishmash of both, I think. Some of the like narrative arcs really do come back around and you never see them coming. But at the same time, <laughs> some of them are just absolute nonsense. Like... The fact that someone is reading a book about men being from Mars and that's like a big romantic trope. And then it comes back around as him getting slingshotted to Mars. <laughs> it's just... Yeah, and that the woman works at a magazine for magazines. Yes. <laughs> the, the best part of that is they say something along the lines of you have to go to France for a work trip because France have not discovered magazines. <laughs> There's always Paris or, or France in a rom-com, apparently. Absolutely. That was excellent. And Netflix also made a Christmas holiday version by bots as well, which was equally as good, oh, which gosh. I can link in the show notes. I'd love to watch a Hallmark movie that is made entirely by AI because I, I feel like we're getting close to them, you know, with, with a few human editing bits, being able to mm. just churn out Hallmark movies just based on, on yeah. AI now. This has put me at ease a bit, you know, when you think AI is getting so clever that it's going to take over the world and humans are going to become their slaves. These Netflix films make me feel like we're a way off that. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Shall we uh, jump into some Watchtower Weekly that's also uh, a little bit ridiculous? Yeah, let's do it. 100%. This article is called What's That on My 3D Printer? The 3D Printer Cloud Bug that lets anybody print to anyone. <laughs> so this 3D printer remote monitoring company accidentally exposed users' printers to each other after a cloud reconfiguration snafu. So just over 70 of the spaghetti detectives, I mean, four out of 10, uh, maybe a bit more of that, six out of 10 for that I name. I think this name is from when 3D printer prints a mistake and it creates like a spaghetti-like oh. effect. Yeah, I'm not an expert on 3D printers, but... That makes it even better. Yeah. I'm going like, you know, I, I started off four, but I, I think I'm at a seven. <laughs> Users were able to, to control others' devices as a result, something the service says it does not normally allow to happen. <laughs> really? I made a stupid mistake last night, wrote the founder of the platform, in an analysis of what went wrong. When I went through the load balancer reconfiguration, I made a mistake by missing a configuration to let the load balancer pass the public IP address of the connecting client to the back-end TSD server. Instead, the load balancer would just pass on its own IP address to the server. As a result, the server got the same IP address for the users who happened to be connecting their printer to the TSD at the same time. TSD is the spaghetti detective, no doubt. The server thought that they were on the same local network and hence allowed them to link each other's printers. So 73 users tried to link their printers to the spaghetti detective accounts during the lifetime of the config error. The service now works through an auto-discovery feature for linking printers to accounts, which explained worked by detecting printers who have the same IP address as the user. An update was pushed within six hours of the load balancer config snafu first happening. The Spaghetti Detective is a platform that gives 3D printer owners peace of mind, so it says, by using AI to intervene and catch failures early during the 3D printing process. Uh, how, how long does it take to, to 3D print something? Is it like, you know... It's a while. Days, isn't it? I mean, I guess that's how long is a literal piece of string. Yeah, it's it's not a quick process. Its name refers to a side effect of 3D printing going wrong. You are absolutely right there, Anna. Where a time-consuming print may end up in a random strand of tendrils of plastic filament, ending up splurged over the project. <laughs> One of the brilliant photos that attached to this issue is someone that 3d printed something on someone else's printer that says tsd is not secure i randomly connected sorry i had to inform you <laughs> and they've printed that no doubt that they managed to monitor that as well for any mistakes that were made in the printing of that on someone else's printer it's very courteous and polite of them isn't it i like that they've taken the effort to like nicely put a typeface on it and center in on the u and everything like they've given that person a, a souvenir of the event yeah <laughs> it's not just a penis <sighs> i i i was worried that that would be where people went first yeah if you could send anything to somebody's 3d printer what would you send i like how these things are printed and so i i think it would just be like a middle finger but because it gets built so slowly, it would be like giving someone the finger in the slowest way possible. I would definitely let it finish. Like if I saw my printer printing something I didn't know, like I'd be like, oh, well, we got to we got to see this one through. Oh, like, the let's, curiosity. Let's of it. It yeah. Yeah. I would send um, probably a bust of me is what I think I would I would send. Like I would do like a 3D rendering of myself and then I'd send that all. Excellent. 
Maybe your phone number, so they could they could call you afterwards. <laughs> That'll be the base. It'll be my phone number, and then from chest up, my smiling face. A statue. Yeah. A statue of Rue. I think that's pretty on brand. I like it. Uh, what about this next one from The Independent? This one's about the UK to ditch the EU privacy rules in post-Brexit push to trade data like oil. Because, you know, trading oil has never gone badly. The UK government has unveiled a plan to scrap EU data protection rules as part of a post-Brexit privacy purge that would allow companies to sell customer data to foreign countries. The Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, just a an awful human being, uh, says the UK <laughs> would like to move away from the EU's GDPR law and allow data to be treated like oil, describing the move as a multi-billion pound opportunity for corporations. I just, just, what? everything about this person is absolutely terrible. What? It makes me feel a bit sick. The dude's Twitter header says unleashing data's power as an advert almost. Who is looking at that and going, yeah, and unleashing data's power, that's great. And not thinking about, hang on, he's talking about my data. Yeah, <laughs> presenting this as such an amazing thing. He's presenting it as a good thing for business. I kind of understand, right? Because if you're running a small web shop or something like that, the EU's privacy stuff can be a little heavy handed, can be a little like, let's put all these banners up and, and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's a bit much sometimes. But at the same time, they're there to protect individuals from corporations. And so to go out there with like, like oil, oh, it just strikes such a stupid note. Yeah. And it tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> about the UK government right now. It doesn't surprise me in the slightest. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't at all. So privacy advocates were quick to condemn the announcement with the Open Rights Group describing it as an assault on our privacy, fundamental rights and liberties that have taken years to establish. What Oliver Dowden really means that he wants to use Brexit to take away our privacy data rights. We were told Brexit meant taking back control, but gutting our hard-won data protection laws means that we'll lose control of our privacy. I think really the thing that they meant was... They're taking it away from some random person in, in Europe and giving it to someone else to make money out of it. Uh, but there we go. I'm not exactly the impartial BBC correspondent on this one, am I? <laughs> A government announcement said that the move would make data-enabled trade easier, quicker and safer. <laughs> no. Faster, harder, stronger. I just... I, I, uh, safer for who? <laughs> and unlock the power of data to drive UK growth and innovation. No. So nope. the culture secretary, Oliver Dowden, said, now we have left the EU, I'm determined to seize the opportunity by developing a world leading data policy. Notice he didn't say privacy policy. He said data policy mm -hmm. that will deliver a Brexit dividend for individuals and businesses across the UK. I'm still waiting for my original Brexit dividend, to be honest. That means seeking some exciting new international data partnerships, again, not privacy, data, with some of the world's fastest growing economies for the benefit of the British firms and British customers alike. It means reforming some of our data laws so they're based on common sense, not box ticking. Holy, this is a nightmare. Like, this is terrible. Okay, so, so what he means by common sense, not box ticking, that means when you click the box to say, give your consent, it looks like they are going to take that away and base it on common sense. <laughs> the, the problem is, who's common sense? Yeah. 
Because my common sense is very different to his, I'm sure. Another way to read this, I think, is uh, we're hurting economically as a result of Brexit. So we're going to start selling people's data to make up some of that money that we've lost. Yeah. The tone of this is just awful as well. Not just the, what they're doing, but the way that they're positioning it. It's just nonsense. They're trying to dress it up to sound really great, though, aren't they? Yeah, looking at it like a data policy. Everything that has been said it doesn't mention privacy once. It's all about data. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. This next one is uh, Ragnarok Ransomware Gang. An- another, I mean, this, this one's a solid name. That's a 9 or 10 out of 10 for me. Yeah. Yeah? 100%. So the Ragnarok Ransomware Gang shuts down and releases its decryption key. Oh, this, is, this took a turn. So uh, <laughs> Ragnarok, a ransomware gang operational since 2019 that gained notoriety after launching attacks against unpatched Citrix ADC servers has shut down and released a free decryption key for its victims. The gang sometimes referred to as Asnarok. Not as good as Ragnarok. No. I'm a light on my Nordic legend myths, whatever it is. History? I don't know. Uh, last week replaced all 12 of the victims listed on its dark web portal with a short instruction on how to decrypt files this was accompanied by the release of a decryptor which experts at emsi soft confirmed contains the master decryption key the security firm known for assisting ransomware victims with data decryption has also released a universal decryptor for ragnarok ransomware that's pretty nice that they did that because i'm not sure i would trust the one that the people who messed me over in the first place put out so it's it's good that they've kind of built their own thing so ragnarok best known for using the ragnar locker ransomware to target it networks it claimed dozens of victims after exploiting a citrix adc vulnerability to search for windows computers that are vulnerable to the eternal blue vulnerability the same vulnerability behind the now notorious WannaCry attack and has racked up more than 4.5 million in ransomware payments. In April 2020, the, the cyber criminals stole 10 terabytes of data belonging to Oof. the Portuguese energy giant EDP and threatened to leak it if the ransom of $10.9 million was not paid. The gang went on to exfiltrate two terabytes of data, including bank statements, employee records, and celebrity agreements from the servers of the Italian liquor giant, the Campari Group, and it demanded it hand over $15 million worth in ransom. And in November, the ransomware gang also targeted Capcom, the Japanese video game giant behind such titles as Street Fighter, Resident Evil, and Devil May Cry, reportedly stole the personal data of 390,000 customers. So this is a bit weird that they kind of just upped and left, but also left a nice thing on the way out. Because they could have just, you know, left and left all these people hanging. Um, With no formal departure note, it's not clear why the Ragnarok group has seemingly decided to call it quits. Maybe it's a retirement plan. Maybe they they got quite a lot of money and, and now they're hoping that if they just drop a key and run, no one chases them. But other ransomware gangs have adopted a similar self-destruction tactic in the face of increasing pressures from the US government, which earlier this year branded ransomware as a national security threat. Revil, the gang behind the JBS attack, mysteriously disappeared from the internet and Darkseid, the gang behind the Colonial Pipeline incident, also announced it was retiring. Of course, it remains to be seen whether Ragnarok's disappearance is permanent or whether it will simply rebrand. 
so yeah, th- this is a nice, uh, a nice retirement. Mm. I think. Do you think they have enough money to retire on now, so they can just sit on a beach in Mexico? I mean, probably not. Yeah, I don't know how organised crime really works, but I imagine a very few number of people got rich out of this, and everyone else will move on to something else. They'll form another gang. And come up with a even cooler name. I mean, hopefully they won't start another gang. But yeah, I get, I get your point there. <laughs> They've got a Trump Ragnarok now, so yeah. I mean, Space Force is still up there. I think that'd be a pretty good one. We shouldn't really be given suggestions, should we? That is true. What if you did though, and then it showed up on a future future piece of news? That would be amazing. That's true. That would be terrifying, actually, wouldn't it? I- <laughs> yes. Credit goes to random but memorable. Oh no, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is a bad idea from the start. This week, I got to chat with Aral Balkan, and we had a lot to talk about. Uh, So much so, we're going to split this one into two parts. What you're about to hear is the first part of the interview, and tune in next time for part two. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, smash that bell, ring the, you know, get the notifications for new episodes. Dropping by for a chat today is Aral Balkan. Aral is co-founder of the Small Technology Foundation, an independent not-for-profit working on building the small web and providing tools designed to increase human welfare, not corporate profits. A self-proclaimed cyborg rights activist, Aral fights the good fight, advocating for regulation of surveillance capitalism while carrying out research and investment into ethical alternatives. Aral, it's really great to have you here today. How are you? Michael, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm good. Thank you. Uh, It's a lovely overcast day in Ireland, and it's great to be here. Wonderful. Can you give our listeners a little bit of insight into what fueled you to start up the Small Technology Foundation? What's your mission behind it and building the small web, and how did it all begin? Well, I guess it's been a long process. I started out when I was about seven years old. (laughs) This is how far back we're going. Just, you know, making things with computers. My dad brought home an IBM PC compatible and a basic manual and put it in front of me and said, you know, go ahead, play with it. You can't break it. And I did. I did both of those things. (laughs) I broke it with fire and smoke eventually. So when your dad tells you not to put that chip onto the motherboard, don't put the chip onto the motherboard, you don't know better. (laughs) And so basically, um, I was very young, and I just started making things with computers. This was a different era, though. This was the era of personal computers, where you actually owned your own computer. It was personal. It was yours. So, you know, when you were doing something on it, a corporation somewhere wasn't watching you, wasn't profiling you necessarily or or at all. We just didn't have the technical means to do it at some point. And, you know, my idea of a computer is a tool. It's something that is, of course, private to you, but it works in your interests and not in somebody else's interests. And it lets you do things. And for me, it let me just explore this amazing world where I could create things. And initially for myself. And then, of course, especially with the introduction of the internet, that I could share these things with other people. And I came to the realization that these things that we make can have a profound impact on other people's lives. Think about how much of your day is spent interacting with people versus interacting with things or interacting with people via the proxy of things today. And you'll probably, you know, come to the conclusion that you spend a lot of time interacting with things or at least through things with people. 
people. And so the quality of these experiences that you have, if you add it all up, kind of starts to impact the quality of the life that you have. And that's what really brought me into understanding the importance of design and experience design. Because, you know, if you think about it, our lives are a string of experiences. The importance of whether these are good experiences or bad experiences, they start to impact on whether, you know, you have a good life or a bad life. And so this is where I was at before Small Technology Foundation. I was just thinking, you know, if we just build the best things we can, very naively, you know, just the best things we can, we're going to improve people's lives. And the whole part of the equation that I was ignoring or not seeing or wasn't aware of was you can do all these, but not in the benefit of people, but actually to trap people or to use people or to extract from people or to manipulate people with. This is the kind of the business model of surveillance capitalism, the, the business model of companies like Google and Facebook. And as I became aware of this, it was just like I just had this visceral allergic reaction to it. It was something that I was very naively not aware could happen, that we could do this. Why would anyone do this? And it was that realization that just made me realize, well, I can't really contribute to these platforms. You know, this is not why I do what I do. This is not why we should be doing what we're doing. We should be making things to make people's lives better, not to entrap them, not to extract from them, not to manipulate them. And that's what led to the formation of Small Technology Foundation. It's been a very gradual process. I think that that sentiment of yours, which you described as a naive sentiment, rings true with so many software developers, which is mm. especially in, in the indie circuit of just like, yeah, yeah I just want to like make cool stuff that solves real problems for people like and, and do it well. Look, Michael, most of us are not psychopaths. I mean, this is this shouldn't be surprising. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, of course, most of us just want to make cool stuff or, or stuff that actually makes people's lives easier or better. And there's so much potential. I mean, you and I both know this. There's so much potential in technology to do this. And yet, for some reason, that is still somewhat inexplicable to me. We have chosen to shackle this to the most toxic business model possible, and we've kind of flipped the world upside down. And we're building two products instead of one. You know, companies like Google don't build a single product. They build two products. They build the product that people use, that their users use, and then they build the product that uses their users, that uses people. And that's how they make their money. And one half of that is just not required, really. Yeah, yeah. So... What do you see as the hidden dangers behind big tech or maybe even the not so hidden dangers and, and, and surveillance capitalism that, that might not be immediately obvious to people? Well, I think also it's probably a good thing to have a definition of what surveillance capitalism is, or at least how I understand it, because I, I do differ a little with Shoshana, who coined the term Shoshana Zuboff. So as I see it, Surveillance capitalism is the interplay between capitalism, which is about the accrual of wealth, and surveillance, which is about the accrual of information. So what happens when the people who have accrued wealth invest that wealth in systems of surveillance that lets them accrue information about people, which in turn leads to them accruing more wealth. So it's this feedback loop between surveillance and capitalism. But where we differ with Shoshana in our understanding of it is Shoshana, to a degree, sees this as a corruption of capitalism. I see it as 
part and parcel of capitalism, the version of capitalism that we have today. So I think that's important just as a caveat to have. And so what is the dangers of this system? Well, what's the danger if public is the default? If public becomes the default state of technology and of people in general, then anything you want to keep private has an association of guilt attached to it, right? It's, why do you want this to be private? What are you doing? It's like Eric Schmidt once famously said, if you have something that you don't want anyone to know, maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place, right? This is where it leads to. And that's very dangerous because that has chilling effects on freedom of expression, that has chilling effects on democracy itself, because we do need to be able to have free flow of information. We need to be able to speak our minds. We also need to be able to keep certain things to ourselves. And really, that's what privacy is. Privacy is the right to decide what you keep to yourself and what you share with others. And it is the basis of all of our other human rights. If we don't have privacy, then all of our other human rights start to crumble. It's the foundations of it. In a sense, it is what protects our personhood. That which you can keep private to yourself, like the encapsulation of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's something we've certainly hit on on the show with other guests in the past. What does it mean to be private online? And like, how much power do you even have over your ability to stay private online? Yeah. I want to unpack that idea a little bit that surveillance capitalism is or is not a corruption of capitalism. I think that I may see this a little bit more from Shoshana's point of view, where because it's not... I would say altruistic, although I, you could argue that capitalism is never altruistic, <laughs> because it doesn't seem to have, it's not anchored in altruistic intent that we end up in a position where it is a corruption, where it's sort of fueled by greed or, or accumulation of wealth at all costs, as opposed to accumulation of wealth because you're providing goods and services that people need and want. What, what are your thoughts on sort of that viewpoint of it. Well, I think it's interesting because I, I guess this comes down to more of a view of how society should be as well. I think it can be argued that when you talk about accumulation of wealth, how much wealth does someone need to accumulate, right? We live in a world today where we have hunger on the one hand, people dying of hunger, and billionaires on the other. If we got rid of the billionaires we could actually have a much more sustainable system because we do have a handful of billionaires right now. But it's this core inequality that drives everything else. Now, if you think about a time when people had no privacy whatsoever, like a, a stark example of it was under slavery. So you're talking about a time, for example, where you had a huge disparity of power, because this is really what it comes down to, right? Power dynamics. So you had on the one hand, a group of people who thought, and for all practical intents and purposes, who thought that they could own and did own other people. And the people that they owned had zero privacy, and they had zero personhood within this system. So that's kind of like the one extreme end of it. Now we don't have that today, right? On the other hand, though, these corporations can own everything else about you that makes you who you are apart from your physical body, right? Today, it's not legal to have slaves. So today it's not, but a corporation can own everything else about you that makes you who you are. All of your thoughts, all of your fears, everything that you've put down into you know, a platform that they own and control, they can actually own all of that. So I think it's very important to understand that this comes down to power relationships. And that's why I think it's fundamental within capitalism where we have these huge power differentials between the haves and the have-nots. It makes sense 
that the people who have a lot of things want to keep a lot of things. What happens then when you have a lot of people out there who don't have much? Well, I think one of the things that you could do is you probably should keep a good eye on them, right? Because they might be up to no good and they might be after some of the stuff that you have. So surveillance naturally works into these sort of systems. And then, of course, it just becomes a multiplier for the power differential. If I know everything about you and you don't know anything about me, I have a huge amount of power over you. So today, Google can know everything about me. But if I take a camcorder and I walk into Google's offices, I'll get arrested. So Google has the right to know everything about me. I don't have the right to go in and you know, learn anything about Google. And this is the power differential. So really, I think maybe it's more enlightening to start thinking about this in terms of power differentials, in terms of our approach to designing technology. Is it colonial in nature? Does it require a group of experts, people who know the equivalent of the white man bringing the fire? Is it colonial in nature or can we actually have technology that is much more egalitarian, where it's not just about one group designing for another? So, yeah, I mean, I could go on forever on this subject. (laughs) It's something I think about a lot. It's something that I try to incorporate in how we do things as well, because it's so easy to fall into that colonial way of creating technology. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So br- bringing it back to people for a minute, you talk about this this power imbalance. Do you think that users have any power over big tech? Like, Is there pressure that consumers can put on them to be better? Are ethical alternatives the only way? Is this a, a legislative problem? Where, where, where do you lie on that one? Well, you hear it a lot, don't you? Well, just vote with your wallet. I mean, if you don't like what Google does, just vote with your wallet. Don't buy Google's phones. Don't buy Chromebooks. Okay, all right, I won't do that. So what are my options? Well, until recently, you know, Apple was quite a viable option within the limited choices that we have in the world of trillion-dollar companies. At least they had what I saw as an absolute competitive advantage in privacy because of their business model. And when I wrote an article about this in 2015, I said they probably won't throw this away. Now, if you've been following the news recently, they are in the process of throwing this away by implementing client-side scanning on their devices. Now they're doing that. So I might be hesitant now to recommend an iPhone. And people might say, okay, well, just don't buy Apple then. Okay, so I'm not going to buy Google. I'm not going to buy Apple. I'm not going to buy Samsung because, of course, they're Google. And I'm not going to buy pretty much nearly anything that's out there in the mainstream that's made by a a trillion or multi-billion dollar corporation right now because they all seem to have the same business model. They all seem to have much more in common with each other than they do with, you know, anyone else. So what are your options? Well, you could buy a phone and you could, you know, flash your own ROM onto it or something like that. Great. So now you're kind of telling me that I need to become the sort of experts that Apple has and the sort of experts that Google has in order to keep my phone secure myself when I've like unlocked its boot locker, etc. That's not really a realistic alternative right now. I might do that. That phone is still not going to be as secure as an iPhone because I've kind of said, okay, well, I'm going to do a few things that open up security holes in it in order to have better privacy, but privacy and security are interrelated. And I can do this, but the person on the street is not going to do it. And not because they're dumb, but because they're a brain surgeon and they don't have the time for this bullshit, right? Because they have brain surgery in the morning. Right. I mean, this is, this is not an alternative. 
this is quite an elitist position to have. And again, not because people are dumb, but because people don't necessarily have time to be experts in this area in order to, and they shouldn't have to be in order to have private alternatives. So right now, the whole voting with your wallet thing, I think, is, is ridiculous. You can't vote with your wallet against trillion-dollar corporations. They don't really care that much. <laughs> right. Yeah. Apple's not going to care if I don't buy another iPhone. They're not even going to notice. And since we don't really have actual choice, you know, what am I going to vote with my wallet towards? And also, I think it's very important to understand that it's not a level playing field. If on the one hand, you have 99.99999% of all capital investment going into these toxic business models, then, you know, you can't just expect the alternatives to appear out of nowhere magically. Who's going to make these alternatives? How are they being funded? You know, the venture capitalists who want five, 10 times their money back are not going to be funding these things. Right. And if they do, they're going to corrupt them in different ways. Why aren't we thinking of different ways of funding technology that is in the common good, perhaps from the commons, for example? Aral, it sounds pretty hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not hopeless. I'm sorry. I know. I, you know, I, I sometimes get into these things where I'm like, I'm outlining the problem. And uh, yeah, and then I look out onto the audience and I'm like, okay, it looks like a pit of despair there. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's also talk about how it's not hopeless. Because it's not hopeless. Uh, I, I think what we have is a failure of imagination here. We have also the failure of a system that is so short-sighted that it sees success in quarterly terms, you know, quarter-on-quarter revenue growth. That is the only goal that a publicly traded corporation has, right? And we've based our whole system on this. It's not just because there are evil people working at these places. We've created this system that has these atrocious success criteria, Quarter-on-quarter revenue growth. For how long? Forever. (laughs) Oh, so infinite growth with finite resources. Awesome. That's just a euphemism for extinction. We've created this system with these sort of very exploitative success criteria. And then we wonder why the products that are built within this system work against our own best interests. You know, and this is, and it's all intertwined. You look at climate change, what we're, what we're doing. You know, some corporations have over the past few decades gotten ridiculously rich. How? By destroying the environment and the habitat that human beings need to live. Who works at these corporations? Human beings do. I mean, this is a ridiculous system, right? If we just take a step back and go, maybe this system doesn't benefit any of us. And it's the same thing here. If we're building systems that maybe give us a a profit bump in this quarter, but mean that we're losing our freedoms a year down the line, several years down the line, that's going to affect all of us. I don't think any of us want to live in an authoritarian state. Why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep building these infrastructures that are not in our own best interest in the future? So I think if we want hope, we just have to look within ourselves, you know, and look within the system that we have and say, you know, is this what we want? Is your chance to potentially be a billionaire one day worth screwing everything up? Do you even want to be a billionaire one day? What are you going to do with it? Hmm. I mean, do like Michael, you tell me, do you want to be a billionaire one day? No. I don't think it's necessary. Exactly. I truly That's what don't. I mean. Like it's, <laughs> you know, I, I I can live a very comfortable lifestyle and far less. Let's put it that way. Exactly. And I think really, in order to move beyond it, all we need to do is to move beyond the worst of 
extreme short-term short-sightedness, you know, extreme greed and extreme selfishness. If we can just move beyond that to even understanding what's in our own best interests in the long term, I think we have every hope. That's awesome. So to bring it home, where do folks go to find out more about you and the Small Technology Foundation? Well, if you'd like to learn more about what we do at the Small Technology Foundation, what we're working on with the small web, go to small-tech.org. We do have a, a monthly live stream that we do called Small is Beautiful that Laura and I do. And uh, yeah, you can find all the other links and stuff from there. Uh, feel free to get in touch with us if you have any ideas or if you just want to say hi. We're friendly. We usually don't bite. <laughs> <laughs> Although big tech will probably tell you otherwise. Yeah, that's it, really. We are a tiny two-person and one husky foundation. And you know, just to circle back to what we were talking about earlier about is there hope? Yeah, if two people in a Husky, and the Husky doesn't code much, can actually work on an alternative, can actually make a difference, then so can you. You know, you can probably do far more than we're doing. We just have to believe that a different future is possible. And when people ask me, like, why are you doing this? Why, why are you working on this? The reply I usually give them is, it's not altruism. It's not charity. I'm just trying to build the kind of world that I myself would want to live in. And, you know, do we need a different reason to that? So ask yourselves that. What is the kind of world you want to live in? And how can you make that possible? That's awesome. Aral, thank you so much for being on today. That was great. Really enjoyed having you. Should we start off talking about our episode giveaway winners? So, yeah, these are the winners from the giveaway that we ran a couple of episodes back to celebrate our 75th episode of Random But Memorable. Can I just say that the number of moments that people wrote in with saying that their favorite moments was awesome. Like we got a ton of them and like they were all really fun to read. I was like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> like, yeah, I remember that. Most of them were just how terrible I was at play your passwords right. I mean, most of them were you messing up or yes. or you slightly beating something and, and being much more ecstatic than the, uh, than the moment <laughs> warranted. <laughs> yeah, it was hard to pick a winner just because there were so many good ones and there was a nice variety. So I've gone with four winners. God, Anna, you're clearing us out. Well, go on then. Who are they? <laughs> so our first winner is Taylor, who says... Howdy, I enjoy the Random But Memorable podcast. My favourite podcast moment was Rue melting down as he got swept by Matt in a game of Play Your Passwords Right. I could definitely understand his reaction, but laughed anyway because it was hilarious. <laughs> and then my second favourite moment was when Troy Hunt schooled everyone in Play Your Passwords Right. Thanks for shining a light on cybersecurity issues in a fun and relatable way. Watchtower Weekly is a helpful but regrettably necessary overview of security news and several times it has prompted me to immediately update a password. Oh, that's great. Thanks very much, Taylor. I also enjoyed Sweeping Roo there yeah. in, in that game. Sometimes I do miss Play Your Passwords Right. It, it was definitely the, the most kind of Marmite of a game that we've played. Like <laughs> either, either you really loved it or you really hated it. Maybe it'll come back one day. Yeah, I think we need to bring it back at least for a, like a Christmas special or something. Mm, no. So I can see here our second winner is Steve. And uh, Steve says, hi, guys and girls. As your podcast is pretty good all the time, as good as an IT security podcast can get, in fact. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Steve, was that a backhanded compliment? <laughs> there was a compliment. And then there was this compliment <laughs> is, you know, in the space in which it can't get any bigger. <laughs> 
Uh, it's not a good podcast, but it's a good IT security podcast. As good as one can as get. As good as it can get, yeah. yeah. You, you've hit the bar, but the bar is low. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's hard to choose one moment, he says. But I would settle for all of your comments and the screw-ups that the Sony did or didn't do on their hack. That was a solid episode as well, where we mm. we really did uh, a deep dive in on, on that and found out all the information around the situation that happened there. Was yeah. uh, It was great. If, if anybody wants to go back through a couple of our old episodes, we did for a time kind of dive deep on the on the media reaction and some of the methodologies of uh, some of these big hacks. Yeah, it was back in the days of Hacks Revisited, which I would like to revive at some point. So if people want to see that again, just let me know on Twitter. Hacks Revisited Revisited. Yeah. So the third winner is Mike on Twitter. My highlight continues to be that everyone says I love you at the end of each show. But not knowing the capital of Australia is rapidly gaining <laughs> on it. <laughs> I mean, that is true. Yeah. yeah the I love yous are, uh, I don't know. Did we start those in episode one or did we just start those when Anna showed up? Because I don't, I don't recall. I feel like you started them from day one. Yes, I agree. That's a, it's a nice way to end things. And if you listen to that point in the show, uh, congratulations. That's an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think my podcast app actually skips past that bit because it's too close to the end. <laughs> So the fourth winner uh, is Adam on Twitter. My favorite moment from Random But Memorable is, is Cherry a Berry? That, I mean, you're not wrong. Uh, thanks, guys, for an informative and funny, entertaining podcast. Yeah, that's definitely one of my favorites as well, where you two were trying to figure out in a game of real or not real whether bananas were actually berries and um it made you question everything about berries and cherries and strawberries <laughs> and it was good fun <laughs> are cherries a berry are cherries a berry are cherries a berry 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 it could technically be a berry hang on aren't strawberries not berries it could technically be a berry are cherries a berry I don't know anymore. I don't know what's real anymore. <laughs> are cherries a berry? Uh, yeah, so th- those are all our winners. Do we know yet what we're sending out, Anna? What, wherever we can grab our hands on is probably the answer. Yeah, we've got some 1Password t-shirts, some stickers, and we're going to give all the winners one year of 1Password for free. 1Password face masks, 1Password <laughs> hand sanitizer. <laughs> the lot. All of our mugs broke. All of our mugs broke. Yeah, I don't have any mugs. Yeah, we don't have any mugs. They didn't make it. Yeah. But you can have other stuff. Yeah. And we should also point out that we have a new email address set up for the podcast now. Do we? Yeah. So if you want to write into the show or ask us anything, you can do so at podcast at onepassword.com. Or, of course, you can still use the Ask One Password hashtag on Twitter. All right. I think that this is time for three-word password. Yes. Three-word password. The single worst way to share a password. And we use cryptic clues to guess the three mystery words created by our memorable password generator and then Rue reads them out or doesn't read them out and then writes the answer in the show notes silent <laughs> which is great radio so I, I i will start off with the first one and then we can see what we think to speak or utter around a language or topic with only a slight knowledge or to study that subject superficially also used to self-profess how little knowledge you have Adding an ing suffix can change the word to mean a more universal small amount. Mm. Hmm. I'll give you a clue as well. It's not dabble. Mm, to dabble. You know what? That's what I was. Yeah. I was going to say. My mind is going to the word dabble, but it's not that because dabbling is not a 
uh, universal small amount. Yeah. It's the it's the universal small amount word that I think you, you'd be most familiar with. If you put a small amount of paint on a wall in like a slapdash manner, what would you call it? Oh, a smattering? Oh. It is a smattering. Well done, Ray. Look at that. I can only imagine that word being used in that exact context of a small amount of paint. <laughs> Being put on a wall in a slapdash banner. I would never say I have a smattering amount of knowledge of German. Can I just say something, Matt? <laughs> I think that the fact that I got the word smatter out of that description that you just gave speaks to our friendship a bit and how how much you and I... More than of... that description, you mean? Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> okay, so this next one is a person who wastes money, supplies, or opportunities by not using them to their advance. Usually used to imply the wasted something had value or was, some, or was limited in some way. It's like the opposite of resourcefulness. Unresourceful. <laughs> That's not going to be it. <laughs> That's not it. A person who wastes money. Frivolous. So, so this one is probably messing you up because it's a person but if you think of if you were to waste something and then add er to the end <laughs> like yes, right i mean like a person like you know like a philanderer is a person who has philandered who philanders yeah. yes exactly squander yeah that's what i was going to as well but so like, a person who does that would be a, a squanderer a squanderer <laughs> really yes. is it squanderer is that a, a thing a squanderer yep. wow all right good job anna yeah I actually pressed it once this week. Oh. And I mean, I generated a, you know, five-word password and deleted two of them. But this was one one go. Oh, I like that. I'm going to use this one. I'm liking the alliteration here. Smatter squanderer. <laughs> yep. This next one is difficult because I did only press that uh, this once. I didn't know what this word was. <laughs> so good luck. Uh, this pelagic predator. I enjoyed the... Uh, the alliteration there. That's working there. <laughs> the pelagic predator eats a variety of foods, including fish, crustacean, and cephalopods. They are unique amongst their species that is primarily known for eating the cephalopod known as odd bobtails. It has an elongate, fusiform body with a conical snout, large eyes, and remarkably long pectoral fins. It's farmed extensively for its mild flavour and absorbative properties and usually labelled as white meat. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's a difficult one. It is a difficult one. Can you tell us what it begins with? I can. A-L-B. Oh, three letters. Bonus. Oh, is it Alba albacore? It is albacore. Oh. All right. It's like a tongue twister this week. Smatter, squanderer, albacore. Yeah. It's like a, a warm-up for your vocal cords. It's like a description of a... Particularly odd tuna. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, this is good. This is a hard one this week, Matt, but I liked it. It was. It's easier the more times you press generate. And this time, uh, I did it 10 minutes before the show. So <laughs> I only had the opportunity to press it once. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, so in classic Mike fashion, <laughs> love you both. Why would it be in Mike fashion? Mike's never said I love you at the end of the show before. You don't know what he does out loud. Well. Hey, hey, Mike. Love you, Mike. We love you, Mike. There we go. We love you, Mike. <laughs> we'll turn it around a little bit. That's a brilliant ending. <laughs> <laughs> you know who's going to like that most of all? Mike. Mike. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's a good one.